welcome to the Queen Trail podcast. Queen Trail, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed through personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. Welcome. Hey everyone, I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm going to go ahead and get right into this In the Company of Friends talk with Paul Spar. This is a really fascinating episode full of tech concepts and hopefully the demystification of a lot of tech jargon. Paul Spar is the CEO of the Spar Group and the CEO of Metageo. Spar Group is a consultation firm that works with companies and organizations to teach them how to use geospatial mapping, which is 3D imagery mapping that is captured via drones, aircraft, and satellite. The data is used to manage such things as land, equipment, buildings, and other assets by producing a digital twin of the land or the surface that's been scanned. Metageo is the 3D scanning platform that produces geospatially accurate maps of land and the assets that I just mentioned. His work has earned him an Emmy nomination for 3D scanning several Olympic mountain venues in Switzerland that allow the audience to put the mountains in their living room and follow the athletes during their course in both AR and VR for the Youth Olympics 2020. He's a bit of a technological wunderkind, and I'm really proud to say that he's also my cousin. All right. You good to go? Yep. Ooh, that sounds good. Are you having mineral water? Yeah, it's a uh, LaCroix. LaCroix. Which one? Uh, Pamplemousse. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Grapefruit. I like yep. that one. <laughs> I like the I like the hibiscus one and the passion fruit one a lot too. I like those as well, but Jess doesn't. Really? Does she have a yeah. favorite? Yeah, it's like the key lime and the pamplemousse are her two favorites. Well, actually, she likes the orange one as well. I don't think I've tried the orange one. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pick that one up. I like the limoncello one a lot as well. That's my mom's favorite. Yeah, that's a really nice one. Yeah. So. Okay, commercial for LaCroix. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. Paul, you're the younger, handsomer, and honestly, outrageously smarter of the two of us. (laughs) And I've just been watching you blow my mind regularly over the years from your decade of being a flight paramedic and doing search and rescue to running an environmental mapping and robotics lab using aerial and submarine drones when you were at Cal State Channel Islands. And then you suddenly exited from being a first responder due to having to overcome some surgeries, only to come out with a fire drive that led you into diving deep into the drone and mapping game with your environmental conservation and rescue-driven technology company. The SPAR Group and now the exciting future of Metageo. And since I mentioned family, I have to say that there's a 
finely honed intelligence gene in spar blood. I mean, it's seriously mind expanding talking with you, talking with Gina on astrophysics, Joanne and Mike on technology, my dad on the mechanics of how things work, just to name a few of the brilliant minds in our family. And there's an even more finely honed gene, if you can believe it, that is kindness and thoughtfulness and genuineness. And these are some of the people that are striving to make the world a better place. And I'm really thrilled to get to pick your brain today. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be here. I'm going to start with the family. The Spars have had a long and commendable history of ingenuity and finding not only ways to survive within the adversity, but creating a sunny warmth that leaves plenty of room for expansion of interests. And it's really an envious trait for those striving to find a purpose, especially during these uncertain times. And I think that our grandmother, Alvina Spar, was a visionary master who instilled the philosophy of perseverance, hard work, looking for opportunity, stewardship of others in the environment, and the knack for loving life, even on dark days, and really maybe in spite of them. Nothing could dampen her flame. She was just really a pioneer and a legend, and you perhaps had the closest relationship with her. Tell us about growing up and how it inspired your interests into technology. Yeah, well... Um... Growing up with my grandmother, which is Alvina, it was very amazing because she was like a second mother to me. She was a role model. She was always, you know, giving me kind of a uh, a plan or a uh, a path to walk through life as far as, you know, how to treat people, how to respect people. She was one of the kindest and most gentle people that I know. I don't think that I have ever seen her say or really do anything against somebody that wasn't deserved. <laughs> you know, I, I, she was always so kind and caring and she would go out of her way to make sure that everyone she knows, not just her family is taken care of. Mm-hmm. And I think she really instilled that sense of needing to uh, take care of and help others and me. Because as I kind of got older, she was always, you know, a big part of my life. And unfortunately, Part of the way through my teenage years, she had a stroke. And yeah. so when she had a stroke, it was kind of a big thing for me because I was at that age where, you know, I was pretty independent. Um, I didn't need somebody to watch me. And then I actually became a caretaker for her. And so with my mother, you know, she's a single mom working full time and going to college at the same time. And so I think I got actually my drive from both of them. Um, my grandmother was uh, Rosie the Riveter, you know, during World War II working yes. to build uh, aircraft uh, during the war. She was a welder. And she was a single mother of, what, six kids? Seven kids? And yeah. I'm trying so, to count them all in my head right now, but yes. <laughs> and, and my mom, even though she only had one you know, kid, which is me, she was also a single mother, but she was working full-time and going to school full-time. So there was always this like strong, passionate presence in my life since I was a kid. And when it got to the point where my grandmother needed to have help and needed someone to take care of her, I became one of the caretakers. And so as I grew a little bit older, you know, I I got very accustomed to coming over and making food 
uh, giving medicines, giving shots. And that's kind of one of the first steps I took towards the medical field. Of course, all this time, you know, with regard to technology, I was a big video game nerd, uh, really into computers. <laughs> and actually, uh, Alvina grandma bought me my uh, first computer. And so that's her buying me that computer, I think, was the real first foray into technology besides video games. And I kind of reached this point around that time where I was really into computers. I was really into technology, but I also had a really big passion for taking care of people. And with taking care of her, I learned a lot about medicine. And so this was right around the dot-com bubble burst. And so I kind mm. of had this fork in a road of, do I want to go towards medicine or do I want to go towards technology? And, and back then I, you know, self-taught myself, I would do some programming and I was, you know, messing around with, you know, building my own apps and stuff like that. But once the dot-com uh, bubble burst, then I was thinking to myself, well, why would I want to go into this industry, which is basically imploded? And I decided to go into medicine because my heart was really into it. And that's how I ended up going down the path of becoming a paramedic. Now, fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years, I was a paramedic for a while and you know, I loved it. It was a flight paramedic and I was able to treat and help the people of the, the Bay Area and really all of California. And it was really an amazing experience. I really love being there and being able to be there with people during their darkest hour and be someone that's there to help them. And uh, unfortunately, you know, for me, I had to, to retire medically early and with kind of the technology stuff that I gotten into when I was younger, I always kind of maintained that, you know, I was into, like I said, video games, I was into computers. Another thing that I was really into was flying radio controlled airplanes. And so fast forward after I retired, I went to school at Cal State Channel Islands and I was actually studying biology. I was pre-med and I was going to go become a doctor. At the same time, I met a really amazing professor who is my advisor and a good friend of mine, Dr. Sean Anderson. Um, he is a huge pillar in the education and the direction that my career in life has taken. Because when I was doing biology, I was start doing some environmental science classes. And then he kind of steered me more towards environmental biology. And in his laboratory, he was doing a lot of really interesting and like brand new cutting edge technology research using environmental sensors, doing mapping and that kind of thing. And so he interviewed me for a research position and he'd asked me, you know, do you have any special hobbies or skills? Do you know technology? And I said, yeah, I'm really into technology. I'm really into building things. Um, you know, my background's medicine, but I also really love flying radio controlled airplanes. And he's like, oh, do you know how to fly drones? And I'm like, well, yeah, they're, they're like uh, radio controlled airplanes. And he's like, well, we're going to start up a, uh, a mapping initiative and start doing mapping. And I was like, awesome. That's what I want to do for research. And so I ended up getting hired on with him and ended up running his entire research laboratory for environmental science. And I led the robotics arm of the laboratory. So we were using drones and uh, boats and underwater submarines to do 3D scanning and mapping of coastal environments to kind of assess them for climate change and various different kinds of like earth movements and that sort of thing. And so that's really what got me into the drone industry is because a lot of environmental science is, is mapping. So you take drones or aircraft or satellites 
and they have cameras or 3D scanners or special sensors. And it allows you to kind of understand the shape of the environment. The, sometimes there's different kinds of sensors that allow you to tell the chemical content. So if you're looking at vegetation, you can look at the health. There's like thermal cameras where you can look at um, moisture content. And it's got a lot of applications in the commercial world. And that got me picked up by a company called Pix4D, which is a, a photogrammetry company. And photogrammetry is making 3D scans with images. And so I went to San Francisco and started working at a big startup. And that led me to working at Intel Corporation. And then from there, I worked with the Olympics. And now I'm running my two businesses. Wow. That's a lot. I remember when you were doing the um, the ROVs, the underwater ones, and mapping the ocean floor. I seem to remember that the drone came across. Is that the right word for an underwater drone? Uh, ROV. It, it, it's a it's a weird acronym, right? It's ROV is remotely operated vehicle. And mm -hmm. if you think about it, well, like any drone is a remotely operated vehicle. But traditionally, uh, ROVs came out a little bit, well, a lot earlier than the drones that we think of today, the flying drones. And so ROV was the, the traditional name given to the submarines. So the ROV came upon a whale carcass out there and you were mapping the coral growth on this, on this whale. Is that correct? Or was that one of my other friends that told me about that? <laughs> that was probably another friend. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I did with the submersibles is we did studies of marine protected areas where we took the ROVs through areas that were protected and areas that weren't protected and in counts of species of different fish to see if there was more variety and more fish in the protected areas or in the not protected areas. So basically like humans have implemented this invisible line in the water. Does it actually work as far as do they actually have higher concentrations and diversity of species inside? Um, so that was one study we did. Other things that we did were we went out actually on two different oil spills that were on land spills that spilled into the ocean. So pipelines that were in Santa Barbara or slightly off the coast. And the oil basically would come in and cover the sand and cover the kind of all the beach area. And we were going in with the submarines and seeing the extent that the oil was coming down to the ocean floor. It's part of the understanding the entire scenario for the cleanup crews to be able to determine, you know, what kind of resources need to be used and how much, uh, where the extent is. And that's really the benefit of having these remote vehicles, whether it be a drone or a submarine or a, a surface vessel. These are vehicles that are remotely operated. So you don't have to send a diver into an area where there's tons of oil, right? Or you can fly a drone up to a high height. So Someone doesn't have to, you know, climb a really tall ladder to get to the top of a telephone pole to look at something. Right. Um, my understanding with the 3D scanning, the photogrammetry uh, from the images and, and the laser scanners, you're using them to create detailed maps, which are geometrically accurate. And your services and technology have a wide scope of uses from mapping out roads and buildings, as well as use of public safety, fire, and other government agencies, and disaster planning, such as fires, which are a big deal here in California. I mean, we're just basically guaranteed to have fires, and it went from having wildfires to having fire season. 
So it really helps with that type of planning, as well as uh, response and search and rescue efforts. And the scans and models can also be used in video games. And as mentioned, the AR, VR, like with the Olympics. Can you explain the technologies and the use cases that Spar Group consults on? Because it kind of seems, you know, like on one side, you're doing a lot that has to do with the earth itself. And then on the other hand, you're doing video games and, and mapping peaks for the Olympics and, you know, kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really, you know, when you try to describe all this stuff, if you're not from the, the, the industry, it's like a bunch of jargon and a bunch of words. And so the best way that I can describe it is that, the main thing that we consult on with Spark Group is we teach companies how to basically understand environments with map data. And so map data, we also call it geospatial data or GIS data, which is ge- geographic information systems. Basically, if you could think of it, one of the most common platforms that people interact with on a regular basis is like Google Maps or Apple Maps. That's a GIS platform. And what a GIS platform is, is it serves you map data. And it lets you look and specifically on those platforms, they're two dimensional where you're looking from either a satellite perspective or a drawn perspective. So there's several different kinds of map layers that exist out there from different sources because there's tons of satellites in the sky. But some of those maps are actually from airplanes and drones as well. And so we teach companies how to use map data that's kind of like that, except for the map data that we use is three-dimensional. And so that allows you to understand kind of what the environment is like with regards to like the terrain or buildings, the um, roads, the bridges. It gives you a digital twin. And a digital twin is basically, if you can imagine, you make a, a carbon copy of real life and have it on a computer. And why that's relevant and interesting is because once you have a 3D map or a 3D model, of your environment, you can start looking at it, you know, making measurements on it because it's dimensionally accurate, or you could start building on it. Meaning uh, when architects use software to create buildings, they need to know what the land is shaped like underneath it. And so oftentimes you'll see houses that are built, you know, on the sides of hills or mountains, they need to know what the shape of that mountain is. They need to know how long each stilt or each, you know, rafter or board or whatever needs to be to make that house level. Same thing goes for roads and bridges. You need to understand the environment around it to be able to build something there. And traditionally, this was all done by hand using measurements, either using a tape measure or a surveyor uh, using a theolodite or uh, other surveying equipment. And so typically they go out there and they take a notebook and they just make a drawing and then add in measurements for each one of these different things. You know, how long this stretch of uh, sidewalk is supposed to be or how long this bridge is going to be. But with this 3D scanning technology, we're able to then have a digital model where you could take measurements from any part of it, right? Because if you had gone to, say, a house and you're putting on a new addition to a house, using classical methods, if you went and measured, okay, this is how big or how long will the wall is, here's how tall the windows are, here's how wide the windows are, and say that you forgot to make a measurement and, you know, it's far away, you traveled two hours to get there, 
you would have to then, when you realize you didn't get that measurement, go back and then recollect that measurement. With 3D scanning, you can make measurements at any time once you have that captured. It's like a freeze frame in time where you can go back and you can look at it, you can analyze it. And because we use both images and laser scanners, you have a really accurate model, but then you also have photos that you can use for inspections. So if you've already built the asset, they can go back and they can inspect and see if it needs maintenance. You know, what's the condition of a roof? Are there any cracks in the concrete, that sort of thing. And it serves as a, as, as basically evidence for any issues that might come up later. So for example, when you're building a building, there's going to be, you know, a plan that's created in CAD, which is computer aided drafting. So they draw the, the CAD model and then they give the plans to the construction companies. The construction companies go out and build it and then they're following the plans. And so as they're building things, if you continuously scan the building, you'll see essentially the, the building kind of slowly being built up. And then you can actually overlay those CAD drawings and make sure that the, the construction is being built. They call it an as-built and you're seeing if it's built as per the specifications. And so if there's any inconsistencies during the building, you'll be able to say, oh, well, that pillar is actually supposed to be two feet to the left. And, you know, if down the road there's like a crack in the roof or the, you know, there's some structural issues, then there's evidence as to when and how that happened. And so that could be used for insurance purposes as well. Hmm. But um, So it's a more trustworthy model than what's been around ever before. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a documentation. And so there is uh, issues with accuracy because you're only as accurate as your least accurate measurement. And when it comes to making these models, there is varying levels of accuracy. Like, for example, Google Maps is not always the most accurate because it's based off satellite data, which is super far away. When you're using drones, you could be really close up. Uh, and then being closer means that you can get higher accuracy. And so there's also a scale and the scale would be, you know, known measurements or GPS coordinates or that sort of thing. So the data can vary in how accurate it is, but you can get it pretty accurate with laser scanners. And so it's, it's really, that's the commercial side of things. And I know that you would ask me kind of, how does that translate to the video game side of things? But did you have a question first? I did when uh, you were talking about Google Maps not being super accurate because they're relying on satellite images that are quite distant from the areas that are being photographed um, because it would breach privacy of, of homes and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Is that why they, they use the satellite? Well, so it, for what it is, it's really, it's really amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's not accurate to the level that you'd need uh, if you're building a building, for example, like if you're going to say, this is where I'm going to place this building, you could be off by a few feet and that's unacceptable because that might put you on the wrong part of terrain and change slopes and all these kinds of things. So when I say it's inaccurate or not that accurate, rather, um, it's, it's accurate within a few feet or a few meters. And the reason for that is a few things. One, um, they have to tie. Well, so first of all, the satellites are really far away. So the resolution uh, is based upon the camera and how good that camera is and the optics that are on it. And so that's that's one component. So the better the camera, the more expensive it is. And the more coverage of the earth, the more expensive it is because you need more satellites. So that satellite data is not cheap, right? Because 
to get a satellite into space, it's, it's quite expensive. And so if you have to have multiple satellites and this and that, it gets, it gets very expensive, right? So uh, cost is one component of it. Other part of it is anchoring it to known points. And they do anchor satellite data to a, a lot of known points. Um, but as I mentioned, you're only as accurate as your least accurate measurement. That actually uh, is something that we take into account when you're looking at resolution of imagery. Because if you have a low resolution image, and we use uh, what we call spatial resolution. So when you think of resolution, you think of like how many megapixels is a camera. But in, in the mapping and geospatial world, we think of it as your, your ground sampling distance or basically how much does each one of those pixels equal in area on the ground. And so that area represents the most accuracy you could have with a camera. So for example, if we're talking about how many meters per pixel or centimeters per pixel, there's lots of satellites up there that have one meter per pixel, which means that one little dot in a photo, like if you think of like a whole photo, one little dot equals one meter. And so that means that you don't have very resolute information. And so if you're trying to attach that low resolution pixel to a, a known coordinate on earth, the known coordinate is going to be much more accurate, but then you're going to have this big, you know, kind of gray area that you don't know what's around it because it's just one pixel and there's no additional detail. So you don't know where that point is within that pixel. I know this is kind of complicated, um, but if you can think of kind of more towards the drone side, drones can get one centimeter per pixel, which means that 20,000 pixels on that photo represents one centimeter. And so that means that you can get very, very accurate. And so, with that, the resolution of the imagery is going to be the limiting factor for satellite data because mm -hmm. the ground points are going to be typically surveyed. So that'll be accurate within a centimeter or two. But there is a limit on the resolution that satellite, public satellite data can be, and that's 30 centimeters per pixel. And the reason for that is for military and privacy purposes. Because uh, at that point, you could read license plates if you go closer than 30 centimeters per pixel. and a good analogy or rather a good reference, not an analogy for the centimeters per pixel is that if you're looking at a photo of your car from above, for example, a drone would be showing you one centimeter per pixel, which means that your car would take up thousands and thousands of pixels in that image. Whereas if you're looking from a satellite that has one meter per pixel, if you think about the size of your car, your car is probably about two meters, maybe three meters long. That means that your car would be three pixels. So if you're thinking about terms of like old school video games, satellites would be the old school like Nintendo. And then uh, <laughs> the uh, drone stuff would be much more like the modern video games that you play. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't even think about the military purposes on that. But yeah, thank you for that explanation. Um, and you were going to go into the fun side. Yeah, so the fun side of things is because we're working with these maps and models that are 3D, uh, a lot of the formats are a lot of the, the same formats that you use for video games. On the video game side of things, the 3D maps that are created using photogrammetry and LiDAR, so photogrammetry, again, is making 3D scans using photos. And actually, let me explain that a little bit further. Photogrammetry is basically you take photos from lots of different positions, and then you can use it much like your eyes work. So what happens is you have two eyes, right? 
and those are like two different cameras. And so if you look out in front of you at, you know, whatever's in front of you, your keyboard or your Canon LaCroix or whatever, you have a uh, depth perception. <laughs> so you understand how far it is. And if you want to reach out and grab it, your brain is actually using the two images. So one from left eye, one from the right eye, and then triangulating the distance to that object in front of you because your brain knows the distance between your eyes. So it's, it's really doing a triangle calculation. Now, if you think about having a drone or having an airplane or satellites, and you have multiple photos from multiple different positions, now instead of having two eyes, you have hundreds, if not thousands of eyes of which to triangulate the location of every pixel in each image. And so from that, you can essentially take each photo and have a depth for each photo, which allows you to make a 3D model from that. And so that 3D model is how we basically create a, an understanding of an environment. And if we're going to be you know, using this kind of model and mapping applications, we're really concerned with the accuracy. But in the video game side, these models are actually the same format. And so on the video game side, we're actually much more interested in how good is it? And so oftentimes, if collected correctly, the data could easily go from one side to the other, but there is differences. And so I kind of specialize in both because I started off on the mapping side, but as I started working more with the data, I started having different organizations like movie studios, uh, video game companies, virtual reality companies come to me and say, hey, we see that you're doing these kinds of things. Can we use these 3D models to say, create a virtual movie set that we could blow up a building in a special effects software and then not actually have to do that because they would not only have to go in and draw those things by hand. And so it saves the artist a lot of time because you can 3D scan huge amounts of areas that they would have to normally actually manually draw for both uh, movies and for, for video games. And so it gives them a lot of flexibility and saves them a lot of time. Now, there is a bit of an issue because the scanners have so much resolution that when you try to bring them into video games, the, the, the models are so big that games almost can't use them. So you have to do a lot of optimization to make them work just because these files are ab absolutely huge mm -hmm. uh, when they're made. So one of the problems is that you know getting this kind of map data from one place to another, it oftentimes requires like sending a hard drive to somebody because of how much data there is. And so for video games, especially with VR and augmented reality, those are devices that show you, you know, images and they're usually headsets and not all of the headsets have a computer attached to them. So they're not working with like super high powered computers. So you have to downscale the models without making them look bad and be able to be processed on the, uh, the computers that are on these headsets. And so the whole thing with the mapping kind of bled over into the virtual reality space for me, specifically when um, I was working for the Olympics and we created an augmented reality app. So for those who don't know what virtual reality and augmented reality is, um, augmented reality means that you put on a pair of glasses or some sort of go between, between your eyes in real life. And so with augmented reality, if you have your phone and it's got a camera on it, what you could do is, and if anybody's familiar with the video game called Pokemon Go, you've seen this before. It turns on the camera on the phone, and then you look at your phone's screen, and then you'll see you know, what's there in real life, but then they'll put images on top of real life. Like in Pokemon Go, there'll be like a little cartoon monster jumping around you know, on top of your 
carpet or table or whatever. And so that's considered to be augmented reality. You're, you're putting something that's not there on top of reality. And then virtual reality is where you put on a headset and you completely escape reality. You have screens inside of a headset and have two different screens and they show you two different images. Again, that's kind of like the depth perception. So you see the two slightly offset images and that gives you the perception of 3D and you're completely in this 3D world. And as you move around, it senses, you know, you're looking left and then your environment changes. And so AR, VR are two technologies that kind of go in separate directions because uh, augmented is adding on top of and virtual reality is completely immersed. But in this case for the Olympics, what we did is we found a really novel way to show the games to people that weren't able to attend. And what we did is we went to four different mountain venues in Switzerland, and this was for the 2020 Youth Olympic Games. And uh, we 3D scanned these mountains with drones, took those models, and we used photogrammetry. We processed them into really photorealistic maps of the area. And then we took those models and we worked with a bunch of teams to really clean up those models and make them small so they'd be able to load on your phone quickly. And then with our partners, we made up an application that can bring those 3D models and maps onto your phone. And so you install the app and then you can switch between the venues you'd like. So if you want to you know, pick the, the big mountain, you could pick the big mountain in Switzerland or there was other ones in France as well. And so you could select the mountain that you wanted to see the venue in and then take your phone and turn on your camera and then you'd be able to see something like uh, a coffee table or any flat surface in your home. And you'd be able to take that mountain and put it virtually on that surface. And then once you put it there, then you use your phone as kind of like a looking glass into this model where you can kind of actually act like it's sitting there in your living room. You could take your phone and walk around it and you could see all the detail of the mountains. And as you walk closer, it gets bigger. So it's much like actually having the mountain in your living room. And so the other part that was really neat about it is that we were able to take all the information from the athletes, their positions, and put them all on this interactive map. So you can see where the winners were you know, ahead of the different folks on the on track and you'd be able to see you know, the stats, who's winning. And then there was also uh, 360 video cameras that were placed throughout the courses. And a 360 video camera is essentially a camera that has lenses in all directions. And when you use an app, augmented reality or virtual reality, and you look at these cameras, you can actually act as if you were there and you can kind of spin in a circle. And as you spin in a circle, what you see in front of you is going to change. And so in this case, we had some of the uh, 360 cameras and you, it's a little bubble that you can click on top of the mountain. And then you go into the, the 360 camera. And if you're watching an athlete, you know, come down a ski jump, you could put yourself underneath them and put your phone over your head and watch them jump over your head in virtual reality. And so you could also kind of follow them down the course because uh, you could jump around to the different 360 cameras that were there. Wow, that's really bringing science fiction to life is what it sounds <laughs> like. And um, is that still available for people to look at? Is there a place that we could send them so that they can take a look at that? Or was that kind of part of a special package that? Yeah, that it was it was a special, it, it wasn't paid for, um, but it was a special thing during the Olympics. But there are some videos I can share. 
uh, which kind of show what it looks like. Oh, that would be really cool. I'll put those in the show notes. Um, yeah, you're doing some really neat stuff. I, I love it. And I love the help, um, that the technology is to the film industry. Uh, like you said, blowing, being able to blow things up without actually blowing things up. Um, you know, you know, I work in film and anything that needs to be animated is, is very time consuming and that's a huge plus. Yeah. Yeah, and one of, one of the big uses actually in your industry uh, that I've found is actually pre-visualization. And so oftentimes for movies or for TV series, the director will want to know, okay, where are we going to put the cameras? Because they have, you know, the, the tracks that they put the cameras on so they can do moves and sweeps. Right. Um, and so they'll want to know, okay, where are my actors going to be and where am I going to place the cameras? And if they have a 3D model of the set, they'll be able to understand where the characters are going to be and where to place the cameras, like how to get different camera angles, that sort of thing. That's huge. That really is. It, it saves a lot of time because you've got to set up for a particular point of view. And then once that is shot, then you've got to reset up from a different angle. And that's very time consuming. So I can see what a great application this would be and a big time saver for shoots. So yeah, um, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I noticed while we've been talking to, which I really appreciate is that you're clarifying a lot of the tech specific words, what AR is, what VR is, what GIS is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that is that compendium of acronyms and tech specific words is kind of a barrier for a lot of people to be able to get into tech and understand its applications to their lives. Mm -hmm. And so one of the words that has been bandied around a lot lately is metaverse, which Uh can give off like matrix vibes, right? Yeah. Can you tell us what the metaverse is and what it's not? Okay. Um, so the metaverse. So, (laughs) (laughs) so this is, you know, kind of leading back to me being a nerd when I was a kid, still a nerd, actually. Um, one of the, one of the books that I read. Being a nerd is a good thing. (laughs) It is. It is. I I owe a lot of my success to being a nerd. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, one of the, one of the books that I read when I was a teenager was a book called Snow Crash written by an author named Neil Stevenson. And he's actually the inventor of the term metaverse. And so Snow Crash, it's, it's a pretty gritty book, just fair warning. Uh, it's, not, it's not PG. It's, it's, a, it's a gritty cyberpunk book, and it talks about the world in a dystopian future where corporations kind of rule countries, and people are basically, they, they live in these, like, these micro-cities, that are corporation run and the the countries have very little stake in what actually happens there. And there's, uh, you know, it's kind of like that that dystopian ready player one kind of future. Right. If you're familiar with that. Yes. So technology plays a big part of it and people are basically trying to escape from their daily lives. Um, And also some people are actually doing their job in the metaverse and the metaverse is basically a virtual world 
And this is interesting because he came up with this before the concept of like our modern video games and our modern internet existed. This is a basically what I would call a virtual world where people interact with each other because everyone has like these headsets that they can connect to the metaverse and people have houses there. People have businesses there. There's like bars. It's basically like a second life. So that's kind of where the term came from. And I'm not going to kind of like a parallel universe type of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it is. It's, um, you know, it doesn't have everything in the real world in it, but it's got a lot of things in the real world in it, but there's also mm-hmm. things that people have built. And so that's kind of like the, the core uh, description of the original metaverse. And then now we have what everybody else is calling the metaverse, which is kind of the newer version. So the, the Neil Stevenson version of the metaverse is very dystopian. There's like gangs and violence and hacking and all this stuff. And the way that I see the metaverse is much more of a utilitarian and uh, social kind of environment. There is no metaverse yet. So people say that I'm in the metaverse. No, they're not. There's no metaverse yet. Uh, Metaverse is a concept of building basically a new internet. And part of that is Web3. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's something else that's being bandied about. Yes, and, and they are related, but they're not uh, mutually exclusive. So the metaverse, I think, will be a bunch of different platforms linked together that will be like the new version of the internet. So right now, uh, well, actually, we'll go back a little bit. So previously, the internet was all text-based, right? So if you want to send a message to someone, you log into a BBS message board by dialing up someone's modem and send them over a message and text. Mm-hmm. And then the next version of it was our two-dimensional internet, which is you have our web pages that you go to and you look up and you get your information. There's text there. And I think the third version of the internet will be the metaverse. Now, Web3, the concept of Web3 follows with that description, but Web3 adds in a few extra things, which is the decentralization of networks. And the idea behind Web3 is that there's not going to be one single internet server. It's going to be a lot of different internet servers, and they're all independent. Um, And it's kind of like the cryptocurrency uh, ethos where you have, or ideology, I should say, uh, where you have, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different nodes, you have a lot of different, um, you're basically decentralizing things. So instead of there being one server, there's many servers. Instead of there being one copy, there's many copies. And all of them have to agree to say, yes, this is true, what it is. So if you're not familiar with cryptocurrency, um, you'll have you know uh, something like a smart contract or a ledger. And this will be on what's called a blockchain. A blockchain is a long chain of files to put it simply, and whenever it's on a bunch of different servers, they all check each other to make sure it's the same thing. But it's not just on one server being sent out to many people, it's on many servers being sent out to many people and to verify that this is in fact what it is, be it file, be it money, be it data. Um, 
there's ways to confirm this. And that's kind of the idea behind Web3 as well, is it's a decentralized way of creating the internet. And that takes the internet out of the hands of service providers and puts it in the hands of people because then people have the ability to host things and have it not just be hosted on an internet server. So if there's like something like a, a if there's a server that you want to say, for example, host all of your videos on, instead of like today, when you upload it to YouTube and YouTube has a bunch of different servers that they control, you could put it out to a bunch of different servers and have it decentralized, not only on one platform. And what that hap what happens there is if so, the, a lot of this argument, by the way, comes from censorship and from uh, control of people's data. Right. Um, but just back to this, if you have your data on multiple different services, if, for example, YouTube were to say you violated our terms of service for taking your video down, then one of the main out of like two services that host these videos just kicked you off of it. Whereas if you're on a decentralized server with multiple different servers having that data, if you got kicked off of one, it would be on others. And so it, it limits the ability for people to take over your data and control what you do. But then that opens a lot of doors to kind of scary stuff, right? Right, yeah. It's one of the arguments is that it's going to open up the floodgates to harmful content. So the video got kicked off of YouTube but now yeah. it's available on a different site and there's nothing to stop that content from being shown. Yeah, I think that that's something that's going to have to be figured out. Uh, or it may not get figured out. I'm not quite sure. Um, I think that it, the internet in the very early days was very much like what Web3 is. As far as like there, there were just so many services out there. There were so many places where data could go. There weren't very many limitations on mm -hmm. things. Uh, so I think it's going to be kind of wild west. But I think naturally, as the internet has kind of matured, there's been, you know, safeguards put in place. Now, they're not perfect, even today. But, you know, I would assume that as things progress, it'll mature and become a safer place. And I'd like to hope that people use it for good, but they probably won't all use it for good. Yeah, unfortunately. And then the other argument is that it's going to provide greater security and it's going to reduce, like you said, the influence of the larger tech companies. But we definitely are not there yet. Um, yeah. And like you said, we haven't even reached the point of being in the metaverse yet. Right. And there's a few other things I wanted to touch on, if it's okay. Mm, yeah, please. So without going too much more into the Web3 thing, uh, what I was saying with regards to, you know, confirmation of, of the data, like if you have multiple different nodes that have kind of a, the description of what a piece of data is or what a file is, it, the security is enhanced quite a bit because if someone, for example, tries to put like a fake file that has a virus in it and you go to download it, it's going to check all those other nodes to make sure that what's on that server is the actual a piece of data or file that you're trying to download. And so if it's not, then you would be warned of it. 
So because of that, having false data and certain kinds of transactions, they'll be a lot more able to like locate fraudulent activity that way. But I'm sure that it's mm-hmm. going to open up doors for much like more, many new types of uh, fraudulent activity as well. Because, I mean, it hasn't built, been built yet, but I'm sure people will figure out, you know, interesting ways to, to game the system because that's what people like to do. Right, right. Um, what are some of the roles that you see of MetaGeo and Spark Group in the future of technology and the metaverse while we're talking about it? Yeah, so with with the metaverse, so as I mentioned, there's, there's no one metaverse yet. There's several different uh, metaverse platforms out there. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have a lot of those pop up and some are going to get really popular and some are probably going to fizzle out. Right now, there's two of them that are really popular. One's called Decentraland and the other one is called Sandbox. And they're basically like video games where you can go in and walk around and talk to people, but they're also connected to, uh, to crypto as well and NFTs. And so with those different platforms, you can actually buy specifically in Sandbox, and I think just Decentraland actually, uh, you can buy pieces of property in the metaverse, so to speak. And so companies are able to actually go out and an NFT is basically like a, a digital object that you can buy and it has value. They call it a non-fungible token. So basically it's like having a unique item of value digitally. And so they have land, which is NFTs in these areas or in these uh, metaverse environments. And you can actually, you know, be Adidas, for example, and buy up a big plot of land and slap your logo on it. And so Adidas has actually gone pretty heavily into the, the marketing and the NFT and metaverse space. And many other companies have as well. So that concept of having digital land in the metaverse, I think is very interesting. Um, I have a different take on digital land in the metaverse because the other aspect of the entire world is that with regards to the metaverse, I think that the metaverse is going to be not so much detaching from the world, but more augmenting the world. And as I think the metaverse is going to be the next version of the internet, I kind of see using geographic data, geospatial data as a big component of that. And the reason why is because everywhere around us is data on location. So we carry our phones around with us, right? We use Google Maps or Apple Maps. It tracks how fast you drive on the freeway. And that's how everyone knows what the traffic's like in you know downtown Los Angeles. Or when you go into a restaurant that you like, it, it registers that you're inside of that restaurant. And inside of that restaurant, you're able to find out when the foot traffic is the highest and lowest and when it's the busiest. And then furthermore, every city, county, and even state in the United States has a GIS department that's responsible for managing land records, uh, property boundaries, and they also do 3D scanning as well. So there's also 3D scanning data sets of pretty much all of the United States. And so with all this data, it's like this huge layer of data that we can't see, but it's there, right? There's your address, your property boundaries. You can't see your property boundaries unless you've marked them. Uh, But digitally, there's a property boundary there. And so with the metaverse and with augmented reality, I see being able to take 
like a set of AR glasses. So augmented reality glasses are, I think there's like five or six different manufacturers that are working on them. Snapchat has one. Um, I know that Apple's coming out with one. Google just came out with one. So they're going to become much more prevalent in the next probably 10 years. As a matter of fact, I think they may actually replace monitors when it comes to computers, because if you can have a tiny little screen that sits on your, your nose, like a pair of sunglasses, that makes the size and the materials that go into building a monitor a lot less. And so we'd actually be wasting less material on building smaller things. And with how uh, high resolution and how the AR system will have multiple different sensors, there's new ways that you'd be able to interact with, with the internet and with data that's there. So for example, if we're talking about this layer of data that exists that we can't see, the augmented reality glasses are going to be like, again, like a looking glass into this world that we wouldn't normally be able to see. And if you're, say, walking down the street, as you're walking down the street, these are obviously going to be connected to the internet. Um, it could be pulling in geospatial data based upon all the public sources that are around. And then when you walk by your favorite restaurant, they could so choose to edit some of those databases, the, the GIS databases, and add in information. So when you look at a building, it says, this is McDonald's. And then um, a menu could pop up. And that menu could give you the ability to order food from outside of the restaurant. And so as you walk and interact with different businesses and go to different places, you can see, you know, the street number when you're when you're driving down the street trying to find a, a person's house. I was um, just thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, some of those numbers are either non-existent or they're so tiny, you can't read them from the street. And even when you're using your GPS to get to a location, you know, it's only so accurate. That would be so amazing to just have glasses and, you know, kind of like this stop sign going, this is it, this is the one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, also the other thing is, you know, for people who are visually impaired, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you could actually increase the size of, of, of signs. You know, it could be uh, the ability to, to look at a, a stop sign or even a, a banner and increase the size because you can digitally enhance and zoom in. And so the fact of the matter is the augmented reality glasses are going to have cameras on them because it needs to have that kind of go between between your eyes in the real world. And so because they have cameras, as camera technology improves, you could totally zoom in. And so back to your question, which is kind of uh, what does MetaGeo do and kind of how does it work in the future with the te technology? So the story of MetaGeo, well, first of all, back up. Uh, so Spar Group teaches companies how to use this data, how to collect it, how to bring it into existing platforms today. So 3D maps, 2D maps, that sort of thing. So going into MetaGeo, MetaGeo is a way to kind of take the products that Sparger would teach you how to make. And so that's that's 3D models, orthomosaics, and orthomosaics are what we call a bunch of photos that you compile into a mosaic, which is kind of one big photo. Uh, point clouds, which are what you get from laser scanners. And then points, polygons, and vectors, which are kind of like when you when you draw a box around an area in Google Earth or Google Maps to show somebody where you know a picnic's going to be, those are those are vectors. And so basically, MetaGeo takes those files and puts it into one digital world, and then it takes this data. And I mentioned before, you know, this can be these three D scans could be hard drives of data. 
Like one of the jobs that I did recently was mapping a really large mountain range and we used a helicopter to do it. And it took up literally an entire terabyte hard drive. And so in order to send that file to somebody, it would literally take days on most people's internet connection. And so what the MetaGeo does is it takes data sets like that and it chops it up into tiny little bits and it streams it. And so the best way to kind of understand this, if you're not familiar with streaming, is if you've ever watched a video on the internet from circa 1990, you have to download the entire video before you could see it. Right. Whereas with YouTube now these days, you can click on the video and immediately start watching. And it's actually sending you the information as you're watching it. So we do the same thing, but with geospatial data. And so that enables us to send that data to virtual reality headsets, to augmented reality headsets, your phone, any kind of internet connected device. And kind of where it's going is as these metaverse platforms evolve, we want to be working with them to be able to import geographic data into their metaverse platforms. So as you're walking along this digital world, you could also add in the real world digital copy or digital twin. And so you could build your digital world off of this digital copy or digital twin. And so that lets them build an even bigger metaverse. And of course, connecting metaverses together, we basically want to participate and help that grow. And so where all this came from actually bridges the gap between both being a first responder and, you know, working in mapping. There was about, well, it was about 13, 13 months ago. So about a year and a few months ago, uh, I was called to to go and uh, work on a search and rescue for a young boy who was swept away uh, by the ocean. It was a really sad story. This young boy and his family had gone down to, to Half Moon Bay and the, the Bay Area beach is not like Southern California beach. It's much more angry and rocky and treacherous. And so unfortunately, uh, the, the family had gone down to the water and were walking along the water, the dad and two boys. And an 18-foot wave snuck up. They call it a sneaker wave or a, a rogue wave. But an 18-foot tall wave came up and basically swept them all out into the ocean. And the father and one of the boys was able to swim back to the shore. But unfortunately, one of the boys was lost. And so this warranted a response from the Coast Guard and the local authorities and so this activated a lot of big tech companies who have, well, who uh, the family had friends with. And so we had thousands of people, it seemed like, that were volunteering to help. And we basically mounted a two-week response, which included boats, jet skis, uh, hundreds of volunteers on the ground, dozens of drones, helicopters, airplanes, everything, satellite data. We basically mapped every square inch of this stretch of coastline, which was 14 miles. And through this experience, I was the one uh, leading the drone side of things and the, the aerial mapping side of things. But through this experience, I learned that, you know, managing large amounts of data like this is very hard. And the other part of it is that when you're working with folks who don't necessarily understand the map technology, because the map technology, like the GIS platforms are so full of jargon and they're technically difficult to use. 
it makes it very hard for me to, uh, as a person that's trying to get someone to figure out where to go, it makes it very hard for people to understand how to get there using existing platforms. And so I wanted to build something that could easily transfer data between lots of different people. Uh, you could use your mobile phone and almost no training to be able to understand how to use it. And kind of the vision I got from this scenario is we were having map pins that we would send to people because first the drones or the airplanes or the helicopters would fly, they would image it, we'd make maps and we'd run it through a, a AI system that would actually search for what the boy was wearing. We were able to actually set in a picture of the boy with the clothes that he was wearing that day and then have the computer search the images for those clothes in a skin tone match. And so we had thousands, tens of thousands of images every day and they would go through the AI and it would look to see if it could find a hit. And if it found a hit, each one of those photos had a GPS coordinate on it. And so then it would go to all the people who were online volunteering to review images. And then they would either confirm or find new uh, potential areas where people could be. And each one of these things became a map pin. And so I was taking those map pins and sending the people that were on the ground or in boats or in the helicopters to go search for these areas of interest where there was a potential sighting. And so people had so much trouble finding out where to go because, you know, they weren't used to using Google Maps or they weren't used to, uh, you know, navigating using a map because oftentimes it, map reading is actually a skill. You know, if you look at a map, you might not be able to understand which way is north from just looking at a map unless your phone does it for you. And so the kind of idea that I had is, well, if I could take all the map data from the drones, make all those map pins be in one place and send it out to all the people who need it in the field, both professional and volunteer rescuers, they'd be able to pull up all the information that we're looking at back in the office. They'd be able to see those map pins. And if they're able to put it into augmented reality, all they would do is use their phone kind of like a divining rod and it would show them the direction that they needed to head to look for whatever item of interest. And in this case, it was unfortunately that poor lost boy. Mm -hmm. I get chills when you tell that story because I do remember that Half Moon Bay incident and that's um, so tragic. But the way that you've been able to look for ways to just make these differences help people actually know which direction they're looking in, what they're looking for, and just create that kind of a technology. It seems like everything that we've been talking about revolves around the geographic information systems mapping, the GIS. Uh -huh. And I would imagine that it would be really important to have this be a core part of STEM education. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. Um, with uh, Cal State Channel Islands, I did a number of uh, STEM and different outreach programs. And so one of them was called BWET, which is the Bay Watershed Education and Training, which was a STEM program, which got kids interested in coastal and marine science. And one of the interesting things about GIS is it, it's pretty much involved in any kind of uh, environmental science. Because every time that you're you know, talking about an environment, you need to know kind of the information about the environment. So it definitely is something that's taught in environmental science, but not everyone goes towards environmental science. And I think that having a fundamental understanding of maps is really important. And, and actually I learned this when I was a paramedic. So I both learned to read 
map books back before GPSs existed and, uh, uh, you know, uh, charts when I was flying on a helicopter. And, you know, it's, it's really important to be able to understand how to navigate because we talk about all this high technology, but what if there was, you know, something that happened and the technology wasn't usable for a period of time? Like, for example, they're talking about how the magnetic poles are going to flip eventually. So what if one day all the GPSs didn't work? And I mean, they, they figure out ways around it. That's a possible, you know, scenario in the future. I always, you know, scoffed at my professors and my teachers in school. And they're like, you need to learn how to do this because you never know when you're not going to have a calculator. I'm like, yeah, of course, I'm always going to have a calculator. And then I'm in the back of an ambulance, like trying to draw up a certain dosage of drugs for a patient that needs to have a weight specific dosage. I'm like, man, I don't have a calculator. Good thing I know how to do it manually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those instances do come up every once in a while. I'm like that with, um, I have a ham radio license. Oh, cool. Nice. And um, that, was, that was a really, really hard exam. I couldn't believe how difficult it was. So I'm a little bit proud of it. I don't use it very much. I just use it for monthly drills. But you just think there's always going to be cell phones, there's always going to be landlines, there's going to be computers, there's going to be a lot of different modes of communication. Why would a ham radio be necessary? But then there's examples like what you have just said. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I mean, in, in geography, it's just, it's just geography. I would say geography, I think, should be a integral part of STEM, not just GIS, because GIS is part of geography. But having, having the understanding of how to navigate, how to understand the earth and the environment that we live in, I think is super important. And on the GIS side, you know, barring the, uh, the Mad Max event, <laughs> uh, GIS is uh, computer-based. Um, so it would be unfortunate if we lost access to a lot of that data, but it really gives us a wealth of information about the world. And I mentioned, you know, everybody uses GIS data on a daily basis and doesn't even realize it. Every time you call an Uber, uh, every time you order food on Grubhub, you know, every time you use Postmates, all those services use GIS data. And that's in like tracking and wayfinding and, you know, finding the closest restaurant to you and all that kind of stuff, finding the address you live at. All that stuff is GIS data. And so it's just going to be such an integral part of society going forward, especially as we become more connected. Yeah, I mean, change is an inevitable consequence of the progress, um, yes. you know, that happens in technology, and we do have to be prepared for it. You were mentioning the glasses uh, for AR and VR and these upcoming changes. There's also the gloves. So it's not just visual. There's your, you know, our hands are such sensitive surfaces, and there are now gloves that can be used so that you can feel things in these virtual realities. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I think they're very interesting. And uh, so there's, there's a few applications. So one of the biggest applications for virtual reality, you know, outside of like the geography space that I was talking about before, mm -hmm. um, is simulation and training. So the military uses a lot of virtual reality training and they'll have setups where, you know, you have as realistic of a scenario as possible. You know, you shoot a gun, it recoils like it's supposed to. So the gun will actually like bounce off your shoulder and feel like recoil um, and, you know, make noise and that kind of thing. So I think that adding in these uh, 
different sensory cues to virtual reality it only makes it more interesting. And I think augmented reality, they're not going to focus so much on that because you're already interacting with the real world. So you wouldn't want to kind of simulate senses as much. I mean, there might be some applications, but yeah, definitely the gloves are really interesting. They have vests that you could put on and you could feel pressure. There, I think there's, there's actually a project working on smell where they can simulate smells. Oh, so interesting. I, yep. And of course, you already have the hearing component of that as well. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how far virtual reality goes as far as being able to trick our brain into thinking, you know, that it's it's someplace else. But then you also have to wonder with companies like Elon Musk's Neuralink, when is it going to be that we can just plug directly into our brain? <laughs> right. There's so many questions that go with it, all the pros and the cons and the ethics associated with it, but um, it is moving, you know, definitely moving in that direction where you're going to be, it's going to be easier for you to be fully immersed in these realities. And it's almost like having your own personal holodeck when you put these on. Yeah. You know, for anybody who's a Star Trek fan, a Star Trek nerd like me. um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, what are some of your um, what is some of your advice that you would give to prepare the next generation for these changes that are coming up and and also really to educate ourselves on these fascinating fronts? Yeah, um, well, to prepare kids for the future as far as like a career is concerned, I would definitely say that if they're interested in these technologies, and like I said, uh, video games was my kind of uh, my first look into all these different kinds of technologies. And video games are, I think, really, really interesting and really important for me. Um, it's not the case for everyone always. But I think that really keeping interested in the new technologies that come around, learning to use computers and to understand how to interact with them more than just, you know, going on social media and, you know, looking up a few things here and there, like really understanding the technology, if that's what you're interested in and finding different programs that you can join that are STEM programs. There's a lot of really excellent ones out there, especially in places where, you know, it's people may be a little bit more disadvantaged and it's not always as well resourced as maybe, you know, like a super big private school. But there's a lot of different resources that are out there for people who are interested in STEM. And really, I, I would more have advice for people that if you're in the STEM field, that you should volunteer and, and contribute to these STEM programs. And I've started probably about five or six different STEM programs at different schools. And unfortunately, the past few years, I've been a little bit too busy, but I definitely plan on going back to it. And I think that really understanding technology and kind of figuring out what you want to do and then kind of pursuing it. And the nice thing about technology is, and, and, and the way business is going these days, is you don't have to go to college to get a job in technology. You have to have a passion for it and you have to learn. And there's lots of non-traditional routes that you can learn. And a lot of people who are programmers and uh, software developers, they're self-taught and they didn't go to a college or a traditional college. They may have gone to a trade school or an online school, but really, it's much more important what you learn versus where you learn it. And so 
if you're passionate about something, I definitely advise people to pursue their dreams because mm-hmm. if you're doing what you like, it's not work. Right. And that's really important. You're spending eight hours a day doing something. You should love it. I, I really do feel pretty blessed that I'm in a situation where I really enjoy doing what I do every day. Yeah, I can tell. (laughs) And you have such a creative mind. And, you know, like I said earlier, it just seems like all of your experiences in helping people and helping the environment seem to be coming together in all the technical aspects of what you're doing. And I just think that's amazing. And in such a great creative way, and as well as your experience with video gaming. So um, that's super cool. I still play video games, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) You and Cameron, you guys will have to connect because you can, you know, play video games from where you're at because he plays them as well. Um, I don't know how much time you have because I wanted to pick your brain about two things that came up very briefly earlier. And uh, one of them was NFTs. Those are a huge thing right now. So you can sell them for millions of dollars. (laughs) And um, I was just reading, there was a guy who had a picture of a rock and it was just, did you read this? No. It was just like a, a child's drawing. He listed it for basically a dollar and it was worth like $10 million. And it got snatched up really fast um, because he listed it as, I think it was a thousand we weis versus a thousand of bitcoin or whatever the other cryptocurrency was but i know that one of the issues with nfts is the carbon footprint the enormous carbon footprint so now they're coming out with some that don't use up as many resources and so they have the wax nfts but what do you think about NFTs in general and these ethical issues that are associated with them and, you know, these ideas that you could just put something out there and, you know, you're going to end up becoming a millionaire? Yeah. So my interpretation of the NFT space is that it's, it's very early. It's very speculative and people are really kind of going crazy over certain things with regards to like you have pictures like you said like a single image being worth millions of dollars or whatever but i think a lot more of that like more more of the story is that nfts are kind of a gateway into a community and so a lot of different uh groups that create nfts they have these communities that surround them and getting an nft from them is kind of like a badge of honor And once you have the badge of honor, you can join the club. And with that, there's like special parties and special events that happen. And, you know, if you join one, uh, one group and there's a movie star, there might be a chance that you can go to a party and that movie star will be there, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just the actual picture that you're looking at. It's actual, like the, the things that come with it. And the majority of the time I've seen it. When someone buys an NFT for a lot of money, it's because the person that's selling it is someone of note, like somebody famous. And so that's, that's when I see a lot of that happening. Um, but with respect to like the, the value of it, I mean, 
I, I see a lot more value in crypto in general versus NFTs. I kind of think NFTs are kind of something that's going to get, get really big, go down and go away. So they're more of a trend. I think it's more of a trend. Yeah. But we'll see. I mean, I could be wrong. Everybody thought that Bitcoin was going to be a trend and here we are now. Right. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What about AI? So you mentioned that um, when we were talking about the search for that child um, that got swept away at Half Moon Bay and Mm -hmm. being able to feed certain images into the AI so that that could be tracked. What do you see as the future of that? So I worked pretty heavily in AI for a little while. And um, AI isn't what most people think that it is. Um, AI is, well, there's, there's really a lot of different types of artificial intelligence. And majority of artificial intelligence is not actually artificial intelligence. It's either, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> when there's, you know, a, a talking head and then a bunch of people behind a, a, a curtain. Right. <laughs> or or there's machine learning and very specific, you know, very interesting and awesome algorithms behind it. But it's not conscious, as people would think. When you say artificial intelligence, oftentimes people think of, you know, a conscious electronic intelligence, whereas, or computer intelligence, whereas machine learning is more like a bunch of rules and kind of a bunch of if thens and learn it it does actually learn but there's definitely limitations and there's different types of machine learning as well um but to answer your question whole what do i think about ai i think ai is very useful for very specific topics so we're talking about machine learning um there's different systems or algorithms rather that are trained to do very specific things. Like for example, some machine learning algorithms are set up to do analysis of numbers or some artificial intelligence are set up to do recognition of outliers, like like unusual events, and then can be then used to predict events based upon the occurrence of unusual events. And then there's other ones that, and this, this is just like kind of more of like text or like numerical data. Whereas uh, there's other kinds where they're image-based, which it is kind of math on the back end, but for us, you know, they're images. And so image-based just has like a slightly different way that it does it. But anyway, so image-based machine learning basically can do object recognition by teaching it what an object is. So if you show, they call it training. If you train the the algorithm with a thousand pictures of a cat, which my cat is meowing in the background. If you can. <laughs> I can hear uh, him. Cute. I love cats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you can show, uh, rather train the algorithm with hundreds of pictures of cats and then show it pictures that it's never seen before and ask it if it's a cat or not. So those are kinds of things that machine learning does really well right now is detection of patterns, detections of outliers, and then uh, figuring out if something is present or not. And so the way that we use AI is that we would take inspection photos of different things, 
such as like power lines or specific pieces of equipment on the power uh, poles. And if we were doing, you know, fire assessment, so to speak, uh, we would train it with a bunch of pictures of the piece of equipment that's at risk and show it a bunch of pictures of when it's at risk, like maybe it's deteriorated or when it's, when it's actually in good condition. So you train it with both. And then first it can recognize if the equipment's present and then it can recognize if it's good or bad. And so we use that to basically create a tool to do assessment of power lines using imagery. And so that's actually a really cool use case. And I've heard of other yeah. really cool ones where, you know, they do prediction of certain events like you know, financial events, even in the crypto market, you know, predicting when prices will go up or go down. So I think that machine learning has very good utility in very specific areas. Now, there are a few things that are kind of scary about machine learning and AI is that, you know, when you do things like you have, there's this algorithm that you could use online that writes stories. They've trained it by allowing the algorithm to read articles on the internet. And it could be really cool um, or it could be kind of scary based upon what it was trained with, right? And so training these algorithms as they do get more complex, because I think we will eventually get to a real intelligence, like a, a consciousness eventually. But the information that we feed and train th these algorithms with are really important, right? Because if you expose it to lots of bad stuff, it's gonna know a lot of bad stuff. If you expose it to a lot of good stuff, it's gonna know a lot of good stuff. So there has to be a balance. And one of the big issues in AI, I think, is biased by the people who are training it. Because if you have somebody who is, you know, male versus female, a male will train the AI with more male-minded things, and a female will teach it with more female-minded things. So what that kind of leads you to understand is that there could be bias in, in artificial intelligence. Right. And so when, when creating this, it has to be, the people creating it have to be conscious of kind of the directions they're going, and really the ethics of it, right? Like, is it ethical to go down the route that you're going? Exactly. And and I know there's a lot of groups that have come together in technology and science and research that are exploring these very questions and, and issues. Yeah. So what's next for MetaGeo and the SPAR group? Well, uh, SPAR group is going to continue on its path, continue consulting with our, our clients. MetaGeo, uh, we're in our beta right now. So we're, we're bringing on beta test users and we're working with new ecosystem partners and basically we're getting the, the, the first version of it ready to go. And so the first version of it will be ready to go probably around the summertime. And so at this point, we're just building testing and getting it ready to bring on the public. Yeah, that's very soon. I mean, that's only a couple of months away, really. Yeah. 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 So we're Wow. Working, working 12 hour days. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I can imagine. Um, I've got one other question. I know it sounds like you're starting to get dinner ready there. Um, I actually have two. One of them is how can people get a hold of you and where can they follow you and get updates? Yeah. So if you want to see what Spar Group's doing, it's spargroup.com. Um, if you want to see what MetaGeo is doing, it's metageo.io. 
Awesome. Yeah. And there's some really good things up there. Plus we'll put the links in the show notes. Um, And then my last question to you is if you had to form a zombie fighting team, what would be your ultimate team? Who would you choose to be part of that team? I mean, how many, how many people do I get? As many as you want. Oh, okay. All right. So (laughs) definitely Arnold Schwarzenegger would be on there. Uh, He's kind of like my, my hero from childhood. Nice. Um, I think I'd probably bring along Abraham Lincoln, uh, Chuck Norris. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Xena Warrior Princess. Nice. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see, who else? Of course, my wife, Jess. Sorry, she was a first. She would be right up front taking care of those zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think that I think that would be a pretty good team. Um, let's see, who else would I add in? I need to add a little bit more diversity. Uh, I would definitely bring Samuel Jackson. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he wouldn't hesitate to use his gun. That's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think that's I think that's it for now. They would, would be, pretty, be a pretty good team. That would be a really awesome team. I love that. This is so much good information. I think a lot of people are going to appreciate having the acronyms, the terms clarified, uh, the great understanding, the depth of detail that you provided. I just, I really appreciate that as well as, you know, all of the people helping and the environment helping angles that your software really um, is at the core of what you're doing. That's super awesome. Yeah. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? Well, I'd just like to thank you for having me on your podcast. And, you know, it's been a pleasure to be able to kind of share a little bit about my life and, you know, about what I've been doing. And I, uh, I really hope that if anybody's interested in some of the things that I've talked about, you can feel free to reach out to me. Very good. I'm really looking forward to seeing everything that you're doing. I'm looking forward to seeing the app this summer coming out for the Metageo and also all of the other projects that you've been working on. It's just really a pleasure. And I'm always just, I know you're an adult and it's funny to tell an adult that I'm proud of you, but I am very, very proud of you. And I think that, um, (laughs) (laughs) I just think that everything that you do is amazing. So um, thank you so much for being part of this episode today. And um, I'm glad you're my cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sophia. I'm glad you're my cousin too. (laughs) All right. I will talk to you soon. Give Jess a big hug for me. I hope that your techie side has been inspired to either learn more about the technology that Paul discussed in this episode or to increase your knowledge of it. There is so much development and possibilities. Just in the short time since we recorded this episode, big changes and announcements have happened in the fast moving and dynamic world of tech. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to both Metageo, the Spar Group, and anything else that we talked about today. Keep sending me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. Please also take a second to rate this episode. Your rating will help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. 
My friends are amazing, and I am so excited to share upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. As always, stay through to the end credits for bonuses and bloopers. And follow me on the socials and the dot com where I post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and lots more. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com, all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Sil Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, curiosity, adventure, elegance, and beauty. It's kind of like saying, oh, well, what is this, what does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? <laughs> let's let's yes. sit down for a few years and talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the vampire hunt version is the one I want. There we go. I, I that's a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm.